Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Randall Worley and Scott Higginbotham. So, Scott, Randall, good to have you guys with us. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Glad to be here again. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about three topics that all have to do with the idea of healing. And our first topic uh, deals with sad songs. In fact, there's an old Elton John song called Sad Songs Say So Much. Um, and there's um, a song by Neil Diamond called Song Sung Blue. Uh, it talks about taking in the blues and singing them out again to make you feel better. And, um, you know, as we look at our culture and as we look at the music of our culture, I think that we find the idea of hurting and the idea of heartbreak, the idea of just bad things happening to be uh, very prevalent in every genre of music. But specifically, of course, you find it in the blues. And um, I listen to a lot of blues and tend to really enjoy it. Uh, in fact, I would say that listening to the blues makes me happy, which is sort of my, uh, my question for you guys today. And that is uh, that um, how, uh, you know, why do you think that uh, it's important for us to sing songs and understand songs uh, about our emotional well-being, and how is it that these songs that seem to be full of heartbreak tend to make us as humans feel better? So, Randall, what are some of your thoughts? Well, I think there's something therapeutic in sharing pain, um, and uh, it, I've always thought of this in terms of marriage, you know, uh, sometimes I'll say this when I'm performing, performing weddings, that you know, with with two, the the sorrows are halved and the joys are, are multiplied. You know, it you you in in sharing pain. I think there's a sense that um, it's a shared burden, and it it eliminates some of the sense of loneliness. I think even when you're sad, listening to sad somebody else expressing similar things in music uh, helps you feel less alone in your own sorrow. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of benefits in that. It strikes me also, uh, this past Sunday, we had kind of a, I'm going to get into this with my question. Uh, we did this, uh, the month of April is apparently uh, Rwandan genocide remembrance for people who are from Rwanda, because that was the month it all started. And, uh, we kicked off the service by singing uh, Psalm 13, which is a lament psalm. And it strikes me how very little lament we do in worship and how very little it's a part of our language as Christians. And I think that's, that's, that's wrong. I think we, we rob ourselves of, uh, you know, if you look at the percentage in the book of Psalms, clearly God saw fit that, uh, a significant portion of that would be lament, uh, complaint and sorrow. And, you know, God, things are not going well and, and I'm miserable and I'm going to talk to you about it. Uh, and Israel sang these things together. And we have this idea that you have to, uh, like you're doing a commercial all the time, you know, you have to have this grin on your face and, and always projecting this idea of bubbly happiness. Uh, I don't think it comes off as, as fake mm -hmm. and makes those who are in pain feel more isolated because they, they feel like there's no space for them to kind of get it out and share the burden of it with others. 
Yeah, indeed. And I think, you know, it sort of reminds me even a lot of Christian art, you know, um, you know, stories, you know, shows, movies, whatever. There always has to be sort of like this redemptive moment, you know, before it's over, like everything has to be all right in the end. Uh, and, you know, uh, we want things to be all right. But in reality, many times things are not all right. And so I, I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be more room for lament in our worship services. Um, there needs to be more brokenness over sin. There needs to be more brokenness over just suffering in general. Uh, I mean, almost everybody that comes into our churches every Sunday morning has something going on that's not going well in their life, whether it be a medical issue, whether it be a work issue, a family issue, a parental issue. Um, you know, everybody's got stuff that they're dealing with. And, and being able to sort of even focus on the fact that we're all hurting together, I think is a healthy part of the church community. Yeah. I definitely think that there's something to the communal uh, sharing of, of grief. And I think that that's helpful, but even on an individual level, there's something cathartic about, um, you know, releasing a little bit of the steam from, you know, the, the boiling pot every now and then. And, and maybe that's, some of the attraction and the appeal of um, blues and other sad sounding, you know, almost grieving kinds of songs. Um, it, it may not be, I'm, I may not be at a place in my life where I'm about to explode or where the teapot is about to, to bubble over, but there can be something that um, modulates my emotions by every now and then letting me connect with that part of me that is sad, that part of me that's, that grieves. And, you know, even if I don't directly address my own grief, uh, my own, you know, sadness, uh, maybe that helps deal with it. It might even help prepare my heart for dealing with it at some point in the future. Um, and, I don't know if it's necessarily a conscious decision that we make in every, in every instance, but there might even be some, some subconscious kind of things that we draw on later on, you know, when, when we do need that kind of catharsis. Mm -hmm. so if, yeah. if that makes sense. I mean, how often does something happen and it makes you think of a story or a song or a lyric uh, that it's sort of already right there in your mind when the event transpires. Um, I think that for me, it's important to process our feelings. And a lot of people don't sit and take time to just process what they're going through. And so for, for me, and I think for a lot of others, listening to music is a way to help you process things and help you sort of uh, go through things uh, that you might sort of ignore outside of that. And it's important to process because process is, or processing is what sort of leads to reconciliation, leads to healing, leads to being able to move forward and being able to, um, you know, pick up and move on and, and, and so on. So there's something, I think, innately healing uh, about dealing with your emotions, even sad emotions. And I think there's something important to that for the human life, for the Christian life. And uh, something else that deals with the idea of healing, of course, is uh, how we as Christians need to think about our relationship with the earth. So Scott, what are 
uh, your main questions and thoughts on the idea of the human relationship with the earth? Well, it, it, April is the month for Earth Day. I think there's, you know, culturally been a lot of awareness this month on, you know, going green and, you know, talking about, you know, how, how carbon footprint and, you know, you know, increasing globalization and how, how are we affecting the environment that we live in. And, you know, there's all kinds of permutations that you can go down. There's rabbit holes there. And, and obviously it can even be a very divisive kinds of thing, um, you know, when it gets out on the fringes. Um, but it kind of raises the question, particularly as, as Earth Day came around, where I thought, well, um, how is it that Christians are to view our relationship to the earth itself? Obviously, Genesis tells us that God made the earth and he made it, made it good. I mean, that's the descriptor that we get. Um, the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, put out an image that in the end, humans and the earth will be reunited. The rest of creation will be reunited in the way that, that God intends. Um, Jesus came back in a, you know, resurrected body. It was, it was resurrected from the dead. It wasn't, he wasn't an apparition. It wasn't just, you know, a, a to he wasn't a totally different guy. I mean, it was the same body. That's important. Um, and so I think it, it really raises the question for how is it as, as Christians, do we need to think about the, the created order? How do we think about our relationship to it? And, um, and, and then sometimes I think as evangelicals, or, or at least in the evangelical circles that I grew up in, uh, it almost seemed like the earth was a dismissive category. It, the idea of the resurrection to come almost felt like a step backward from heaven. Um, so that's, that's, that's a big ask. It's a big thing, but uh, I've been kind of wrestling through what's that relationship look like. And I'd sure love to hear your, your input and thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the first thing that I think about is in the creation story, God creates humanity to be his representatives on the earth. And as his representatives, it is their job to care for as stewards, uh, care for the animal life and the plant life in God's world. Uh, in other words, um, there is an interdependence between humanity, the animal kingdom, and the plant kingdom, you know, um, and we have to view ourselves in that interdependent relationship because anytime it gets out of whack, um, things just sort of go south, which is why we now have Earth Day or uh, an Earth Month, where we are sort of talking about what do we do to fix all these problems that we have created. Um, I think the second thing that this really makes me think through is um, something that uh, is very common in the ancient world in Gnosticism. Uh, in Gnosticism in the ancient world, there was this teaching that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is evil. And uh, it led to, uh, I think, many, many centuries later, people essentially holding the belief that God cares about my soul. He doesn't care about this body. Uh, it led to the idea that whatever happens to this earth is not important because it's going to all pass away anyway. It's corrupted with sin, and it's yep. not my home. Um, the problem with thinking that this earth is not your home 
is that God created humanity for the earth. Um, you know, we, this earth is our home. In fact, um, I take significant exception to, the, to when people say, my home is in heaven. Your home's not in heaven. God didn't create you for heaven. He created you for the earth. In fact, if you look at what scripture teaches about the return of Christ, he's going to refashion the new heaven and the new earth, and we are going to be in his presence on the new earth, not heaven. And so uh, I think, you know, just recognizing ourselves as God's stewards of this world and recognizing that not only is the earth our home now, the earth is our home in the eternal state, I think is important to a proper understanding of the resurrection, the resurrected body, and uh, what it means to, you know, really have a good relationship with the planet. Um, while we can't redeem the world on our own, um, we have a responsibility to share God's kingdom with the world. And part of that sharing of God's kingdom is representing him well in how we care for all the other life on this planet, including other human life, but also including plant life and animal life, including how we use our resources and what we waste and what we, uh, you know, what we work to sort of just, you know, keep going and, and make better and better. So I think there's, there's a whole lot there. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would say too, that uh, in recent, uh, I could probably the last couple of years, I've been really shaped by reading uh, some reflections on creation, uh, John Walton kind of stuff, his work in Genesis. Um, and while I'm not 100%, I, I don't think I'm 100% in agreement with everything that he says, um, I think it's really significant to reframe some of our thinking in terms of uh, this creation being the, the handmade temple of God that God has made for him to dwell in uh, and for us to, to dwell in as a part of his good work. And, um, and that's not a bad thing. That's uh, and that's not an unchristian thing. And you know, so much of my upbringing was shaped by thinking about heaven as you know, charming clouds and uh, <laughs> you know, harps and you know that kind of thing. And it, it ultimately wasn't a satisfying image of what life was going to look like. And so I've I've really enjoyed having a much more a much broader kind of thought there. Randall, I'm sorry. I think I spoke. You were going to no, say no, no. That's perfectly fine. I I think I agree. Uh, with all both of you have been saying, I, I think the big picture is the way to approach this. Uh, clearly, if you just take bits and pieces of the gospel information, you could build an argument for having no concern for the earth. I mean, you know, in First Peter, it talks about the elements themselves on that day will burn, and then we will have new heavens and new earth. So if God's going to kind of just remake the whole thing, uh, and if I understand Paul's description of our own individual resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, it's going to be kind of the same thing with us. Mm -hmm. You know, we, any who are still alive at, at the end will, will not just continue the way they were. They're going to be remade in, in an instant, but it, you know, you're, you're going to be changed into something fit for eternity. Uh, and, you know, Paul in, in Romans 8 talks about how creation groans awaiting it's released because it's bound to us. God tied it all together. Until we are released, creation isn't released from, from sin uh, and, it, and its effects. But 
so you could say, well, you know, God's going to fix it all anyway, so who cares what we do right now? Uh, I, I would maybe come at it from a different perspective. Um, you know, Rome, in, in Romans 1, opening verses, I want to say it's maybe verse 5 or 6, Paul talks about how God has given us, and he, I think he's speaking generally of Christians, the apostleship mm-hmm. into the obedience of faith among all the nations. Um I think apostleship, the idea of being a representative sent out in representation of someone else, uh, an envoy, so to speak, uh, if we think of the Christian faith as that kind of responsibility, that we are to represent God accurately to the world around us, uh, then uh, callous and abusive treatment of creation uh, is a misrepresentation of the God that we claim to represent. Um, I think it is built from the very beginning. It's very clear that God had Adam and Eve set up as uh, stewards, as administrators of creation. And I I think in the New Testament, we were given the same idea very clearly that we will, we will be placed in, in the consummation of our salvation. We will be placed back into that position where all things are under our administrative purview. Uh, even angels, Paul says. Yep. Um, so if, if, if eternity, the eternity we are claiming we are moving towards is this eternity of oversight of all creation under the benevolent guiding hand of God the Father and, you know, uh, Christ our Lord and all that, uh, then surely the way we conduct ourselves this side of that should reflect that that is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't be abusive and dismissive and cruel to creation mm-hmm. uh, and, and at the same time claim that we're expecting an eternity of benevolent oversight of creation. Uh, you know, we should, we should be doing that now. Uh, and I think it, it kind of undermines the sincerity of our claims in, as Christians, when we demonstrate a, a contradictory attitude towards creation, this side of heaven, Agreed. or this side of glory. I would go even so far as to say, you know, in the garden, Adam was to work the land and care for the land. And in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the new heaven and earth, the imagery used is a return to the garden. And um, to think that there's going to be no more productivity, no more work, no more other, you know, things like that in heaven is to really misunderstand what heaven is all about. Um, In fact, I would um, I would go so far as to say the reason that we don't think there's going to be work in heaven is because we as Christians tend to view the toil of our days as a result of sin. Uh, But you know, that's sort of a a wrong way of thinking. It's not that work itself is sinful. It's that work is difficult because we are sinful. (laughs) And, um, you know, um, in the new heaven and the new earth, I think because of the imagery, you know, utilized to say it's a return to the garden, what we find is that we will once again be working in a manner uh, that Adam worked pre-fall. We will be doing uh, things and, you know, holding responsibilities uh, apart from our sinful nature. Um, the other thing I, I want to just sort of mention here is that in scripture, there's an analogy that we as Christians are in the world, not of the world. 
And I think sometimes people have a tendency to think we're not of the world, so who cares about the world? And in reality, um, the scripture says that analogy to, to say this, live in the world, but don't be characterized by the sinful practices of the culture around you. And we sometimes uh, misunderstand it. It's just the sinful aspects of culture we're not to be characterized by, not that we should just dismiss ourselves from everything happening in the world around us. So we still have to be a part of our communities, our local communities. We still need to be a part of, um, you know, just uh, all kinds of things in our societies and do what we can to show care and good stewardship and proper stewardship Mm -hmm where we can, uh, but we don't want to embrace sinful practices um, in the way that we interact with the world around us. I I will say there is one thread in this that's dangerous, and the way many people come at earth care is uh, kind of a revived paganism, uh, where it's worship of creation, uh, where creation itself is God, and uh, clearly, you know, we, we can't buy into that. You know, we, we should never speak of Mother Earth and um, that kind of thing. And, you know, again, in Romans, Paul talks about how when we turn our eyes away from the creator to the creation, that's, that's when we get into huge trouble with God. Right. Um, so you don't but, worship Lilith. Right. <laughs> but, but we can, we, those aren't the only two options. And sometimes in the Christian community, you're presented as though those are the only options. You either absolutely treat creation with disdain or you're a tree-hugging Gaia worshiper, you know. It, there are certainly much more nuanced ways to approach this that, that I think better reflect what we have in the gospel. And isn't it sad that we... Uh, well, well, sad, or maybe it's a reflection of our own fallen state that we become reductionists to the point that there are only two options. And I think one of the things about the gospel is that the, the gospel helps us to realize that there are nuances and things. It, not everything has to be you know, reduced down to a purely binary, you know, light switch on or off. You're either, you're either on board and you really want to care for quote, like you said, mother earth, or, uh, you know, you just, you want to see it burn. And, you know, the gospel helps us to see that middle ground of, wait a minute, there is, this is not only part of our redemption, but we can also act redemptively. And that's, I think that's a, a, a thing that a lot of people miss and, you know, just don't catch up with uh, in terms of Christian thinking. Yeah. You know, I, I think that God's love should be foundational to all we do as Christians. You know, we love one another because God loved us. We yeah. love God because God loved us. And I don't think it's a stretch to say we should love God's world because God loves us. And the way that we care for this world should be a reflection of our love for God. And, um, you know, so as, as Randall was saying, you know, it doesn't have to be this either, or, you know, you don't have to embrace everything that is antithetical to Christianity. If you want to take care of the planet, but what you do have to look at it and go, you know, and and say, you know, look, they're, they're doing this. Well, this is being done. Well, we should get on board and promote this way of caring for the earth. This other thing over here, 
doesn't line up with our faith, we can't, we can't accept that teaching. We might be able to accept what they're doing, but not what they're teaching. And we have to be able to make a distinction between um, belief and practice. And um, as Christians, our belief is foundationally in God and God's love for us. And in practice, our actions should reflect God's love to us and our love for God and how we care for one another, how we care for the world around us, and, and so on. Um, and when it comes to understanding God's love, a, a huge, you know, significant issue now in our culture is with all of the, um, you know, racial tensions that are taking place in the church, outside the church, uh, in our communities, and so on. So, Randall, what are some of your major points of concern or question regarding uh, racial tensions right now, especially in light of this being the month of April with Rwanda. Yeah, this this has been something I've been chewing on for a while now, and it, it, it's difficult, um, both as a Christian and as a pastor. Uh, you know, as a Christian myself, I'm really concerned that I'm getting this right. But uh, when you, when you're in the pastorate people are looking to you for answers. Uh, and and uh, I certainly don't want to lead people in the wrong direction. Um, and this whole matter of racial tension has kind of always been bubbling, but uh, it seems to have really come to a head over the past few years. Uh, and, you know, with confrontations, you know, Black Lives Matter, police uh, overstepping, uh, just... Uh, ridiculously in some cases, uh, their, their authority and, and uh, people losing their lives in the process and other people rightly being very outraged. And then the way it's just become this huge political thing where one party has one answer, one party has another answer. And you throw into this sociology and the dominant theories in sociology today. Um, and First of all, I'm not sure, I'm not a sociologist. I'm, I don't consider myself an expert in these matters. So I, I, I may not understand all that's being bandied about, um, but it, it, just my initial impression of all of this is that the way things are being handled right now is not conducive to unity and it's not conducive to healing. Um, and uh, the idea that you just kind of, because of your skin color, automatically fall into a specific category and you are either oppressor or oppressed. You are either privileged or not privileged. And I agree that in general terms, there are those factors, but the minute you, you start dealing with the whole society that way, then it really doesn't matter what you're doing as an individual if you're already going to be classed as a, as as a problem or solution or you know so it so much anger seems to be uh, flying back and forth you know from from all sides you know there are people people put up something about this happened it shouldn't have happened it's an absolute abuse of authority and then somebody else immediately responds with something about how people don't appreciate police and all that they do for society and it, it, the battle lines are drawn and i don't see 
uh, unity happening. And, and I, uh, I really, this kind of hit home. Uh, we have a, an African community. Most of them are from Rwanda that, that is part of our congregation. They have a, a service that they do in, in Kenya, Rwanda. Um, and uh, they asked if they could uh, share in our normal morning worship uh, about all of this. So uh, they sang a couple of songs for us. Uh, and uh, we had somebody who was a genocide survivor share his testimony. And then uh, our, our pastor of the Rwandan uh, or the African congregation preached. Uh, and uh, what was really interesting to me uh, was the way they talked about this. Now, this survivor, I mean, it's horrendous, the stuff he described. You know, he was 12 years old when all this happened. Uh, his mother was eight months pregnant. She was killed. His father was killed. Uh, he was the oldest of the siblings that survived and was just running for his life for, for several months, uh, you know, drinking water from rivers where corpses were being dumped and just, just horrendous uh, stuff. And... Uh, they were talking about all of this and how uh, Rwanda has tried to deal with all of this. And it struck me as a few things that they did. Uh, they've, they've asked those who perpetrated crimes to confess and seek forgiveness rather than just kind of ignoring it. Um, they had to confess to their communities what they had done. Um, and uh, there's also a strong call on the victims to be willing to extend forgiveness um, so that healing can actually happen. And what really struck me was the idea that they said from, from this point on, on, we don't think of ourselves, we're not going to think of ourselves as, as Hutu and Tutsi. Uh, we're not going to retain these tribal identifiers. And they also talked about the fact that there are physical differentiators. You know, the Tutsi have a certain facial structure that's somewhat different from the Hutu. And uh, you could, by looking, decide whether someone was, was one or the other. But the idea that they, they rejected that and said, we're all one, uh, and rejected the whole idea of, of tribalism. Uh, and it strikes me that that's probably the only way they would ever hope to get past something as, as atrocious as the genocide that, that they experienced uh, back in 94. So my question is, that's, that's, that's a whole lot of preamble, I'm sorry, but how do we provide a gospel answer to the concerns of racial tensions that results in humility, healing, and unity rather than pride, aggression, and fragmentation? So I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts. Can I, is, is, I, you know, I think so much of the gospel boils down to um, individual awareness. I mean, obviously in the gospel, there has to be my awareness of my own sinfulness, my awareness of God's holiness, my awareness of um, Christ's sacrifice for me. Um, and the gospel does not do well, um, although, I mean, obviously there's a proclamation aspect to the gospel. I mean, obviously, but the gospel doesn't do well with a pointed finger, merely instructional to someone else. You know, I have to, I have to appropriate it for myself. 
And so I think in terms of so much of this racial reconciliation, I mean, I think it's the same way um, that there's going to have to be less finger pointing. Um, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and more individual <coughs> appropriation and awareness of responsibility or culpability or hurt and be able to step back and say, I'm, I'm wrong, or, you know, and, and by the way, th I think that's on both sides of the equation. Um, you know, anytime that there's any kind of racial inequality or there's racial divisiveness or, or racial hurt, um, you know, there has to be a place where a person steps back and say, and, and says, I'm, I may be culpable in this. I may be a victim of this, but um, please hear me out as I bear responsibility for my part. And then I think once that happens, then you can start moving forward with some, you know, with real reconciliation and real healing, if that makes sense. I would agree that uh, taking responsibility for one's own actions is an important part of this. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, right now what we see is the news media break stories as fast as they can. They want to be the ones to break the story. And right. oftentimes they do so without having the full story. In fact, I would argue that the vast majority of the time they don't have the full story. And so then something comes out in the news and it goes to court and then a different decision is reached in court. And then the country feels like there was no justice done because right. all they got to see what was happening on the news and they missed, you know, 90% of the evidence in the case. Um, you know, so I think that people who have information need to be responsible enough to vet that information uh, before just trying to be the first one to break a story. Um, that's not to say that there's never cases of injustice being done. I mean, that definitely happens. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we want to you know, I think if, if we're going to really move forward, we can't make a big deal out of everything we think will get lots of views on social media and ignore the things that we don't think will get a lot of views. And uh, the other thing is, is we've got to learn to treat people like people. Uh, I heard Morgan Freeman doing an interview a while back and someone said, well, you know, I'm a white man interviewing you. You're a black man. And he essentially said, no, no, no I'm a man and you're a man. And we need to sort of drop these um, qualifiers on who yeah. we are if we're going to have meaningful conversation about this. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with, in, in some respects, having this, you know, identity as a cultural group of people. You know, um, every different culture has their own traditions and their own, um, you know, practices, things that they do. Uh, but that doesn't mean, I think what we have to be careful of is, um, you know, in spite of our traditions and the things that identify us, we can't think of ourselves as superior to others because of those. I think that's where you get into real trouble. You know, we have to, to recognize that different groups of people, different, different ethnic groups, even in America, right, do things differently, you know, uh, and it's not just based on skin color. I mean, if you look at a white man who grew up in Alabama, a white man who grew up in California, and a white man who grew up in New York, 
they're going to be wildly different than how they, they view just lots of different family traditions or uh, social, uh, you know, social traditions in their respective places, geographic locations. So there's nothing wrong with embracing things that, you know, give us identity, but we can't treat ourselves as being better than everyone else because they don't do things the way that we do. Um, there's a really wonderful documentary uh, that uh, I, I watched a while back. And let me preface this with this is this documentary was done by Diva Khan. And she was um, uh, a lady in England who made some comments about uh, white, uh, white supremacy in England, uh, you know, being a thing of the past, which is not a bad, I mean, that's not a bad thing, <laughs> but, um, but there were some people in the United States who were white supremacists who apparently took issue to her saying these things. And so she decided to come over to America and she spent about six months um, as a Muslim woman going around and interviewing and spending time with people who were part of the KKK and other stuff here in the United States. And throughout the documentary, what you see is that the people that get to know her tend to sort of move away from their racist positions. Mm -hmm. And what you also see is that uh, the people who are extremely racist tend to categorize entire groups of people. Uh, but there's no real understanding of individual personalities in that. Um, as you get to know people who are different than you, it becomes very difficult not to see their value and not to see them for who they really are. Uh, one of our big problems is we just don't, you know, it, we as in Americans in general seem to not make an effort to get to know people who may see things differently. And that includes not only ethnicity, but it includes religious beliefs. You know, I mean, how many Christians have friends who are Buddhist? How many Christians have friends who are Muslims? And so it, it doesn't just have to do with our skin color. It has to do with our entire worldview. And the more we get to know people, the more we can begin to see them for who they are and, and, and treat them accordingly, you know, with dignity and honor and respect, even if they don't agree with us or see eye to eye with us. I think as a, the church at large has, has had a problem over the past couple of hundred years, at least, with this idea of how do we do missions? Uh, and um, we've kind of adopted a worldly model. Uh, you know, the popular expression of it is the idea of the homogeneous unit. So you, you identify a particular cultural group that kind of hangs together and you figure out how to contextualize the gospel presentation to them and tailor it to them in such a way that they can receive it. And, and, uh, and what we encourage congregations to do is to build the gospel around what they're comfortable with. So we end up with white churches and we end up with black churches and we end up with Hispanic churches and we end up, and everybody has their little flavor of Christianity. And uh, what we sacrifice when we do church that way is the gospel core reality as a message of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, church is never meant to be easy. It's meant to be supernaturally impactful. It, it's meant to represent something only God could accomplish among human beings. Uh, and 
It's the gathering back together of the family of Adam and Eve, but without sacrificing the diversity. And that, that's the real trick. It's easy to achieve unity when we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. When we're all exactly the same, we all like exactly the same things. That, that, that's, that happens whether you want it to or not. But what I see in the New Testament is a description of tremendous diversity in unity. And it's, it's amazing to me that Paul never even suggests as let's figure out how best to deal with this problem of Jewish and Gentile believers. There's so much tension. Why don't the Jews just have their church on this side of town and the Gentiles have their church on this side of town? Paul never even suggests anything like that. Nope. And uh, you've got to figure it out. And in the same congregation, you have slaves and you have wealthy patron type figures who are city treasurers in Corinth. I mean, and Paul says, yeah, we're all family. We are all siblings in Christ. And we need to learn despite the wildly divergent realities of our lives in this world, we need to discover our common identity in Christ. And I think that's, that's the challenge for the church is to speak that into because what I'm seeing happening is kind of a revival of another humanist answer to the problem of sin. Mm-hmm. Humankind is selfish because of sin, and we mistreat one another. We leverage our power for our own benefit and abuse others. That's been happening since Adam and Eve. And periodically, groups of people come up and say, well, this is wrong. Let's fix it. And there are always these uh, humanist experiments that say, well, let's identify the people in power who need to be removed from power and we'll fix the problem. Well, that was communism's big uh, (laughs) promise. We'll just get rid of the bad power people and then it'll all be good. I see that happening again. This idea that power itself is the problem. No, it isn't. We are the problem. Every one of us. There's not guilty and not guilty. We're all sinners. How do, how do we get that out there, that, that, that what we all need is Christ uh, and, and the kind of transformation only he can make happen? Um, I've, I've been preaching through Ephesians on Sunday morning here with, with my congregation. And uh, the theme that I've picked up from Ephesians, we're, we're, we're in chapter six now. The theme that I've picked up, Ephesians, you know, the second half of verse 10 that uh, God has intended in Christ to bring together both things in heaven and things on earth. And then this is the unfolding, you know, ramification of everything that Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about bringing together Jew and Gentile. And I can't remember which commentator it was. I think it was Lynn Kohick that I was reading a couple weeks ago, a real poignant statement. She said, um, but it was in the process of, of the household code, uh, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. And she said, and you know, in, in the gospel, the gospel does not eradicate difference, but it eliminates dominance. And I thought, you know, there it is. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I completely agree. And, uh, you know, we tend to have segregated churches because people find what they're comfortable with and they go there. And 
you know, if all we're doing is trying to make people feel comfortable in our churches, we're probably not doing our best to really bring people together. And so in our churches, if we really want to have a multicultural church uh, that's really reaching not just certain types of people in a community, but everybody in the community, uh, we need to make a concerted effort to allow for diverse um, reflections and diverse um, uh, just practices of how we do our faith and how we do worship to appear in our services. That's not to say we change any doctrines. Uh, I think the doctrines are pretty similar from church to church. What we do change is um, the presentation in such a way that people with different um, traditions and different practices can come together share and sort of build, uh, you know, build up something that uh, allows everyone to grow and find a place to serve and a place to fit in, uh, regardless of, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what different, you know, distinctions are between uh, geopolitical stuff or, uh, you know, ethnic stuff or educational stuff. Um, you know, I mean, you think about our churches, you know, you've got people making $300,000 a year and people making $20,000 a year in the congregation. Yeah. You've yeah. got people with, uh, you know, ninth grade education and not even a diploma uh, from high school. And then you have people with PhDs that may be in your church. Yeah. You have doctors, you have lawyers, and you may have people that work for the city waste management. And uh, they all need to be able to find a place where they can serve together and remember yeah. that Christ is our unifying factor yeah. and that we're all equally saved by his blood and that we are all equally um, his children and we are all equally made in his image, not just um, those who have it this way or have more of this or not have that or, you know, whatever else the case is. And can I say something clarifying? I mean, just earlier, I was thinking about this um, in terms of, you know, obviously not every, you know, not on, on both sides you know, if we're talking about, you know, the issue with Ahmaud Arbery or we're talking about George Floyd, um, there are instances where someone is victimized and it's not where both sides are culpable in some way. Right, right. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are, yeah. those, but, you know, earlier what I went, really wanted to communicate was that across the board, I think, you know, obviously we have a lot of very defensive white people you know, who are, I'm not culpable for any of this. I don't know. What oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, also you have, you know, very defensive, you know, black people on the other side. I'm not culpable for it. I've done nothing. Um, and, you know, so obviously there are instances where you have real victims and real perpetrators. Um, but broadly, I think, too, we need to remember, hey, I, I've got a I've got a personal stake and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, when we look at what we've talked about today, you know, uh, our emotions are important, whether they are emotions of joy or emotions of sorrow, and we need to take time to work through those emotions to process things that are happening in our life, and um, when it comes to looking at our relationship with the world as Christians, with the, and by the world, I mean the planet, the world, um, you know, we, we have to think about, you know, we're God's representatives here. How do we reflect God's goodness, God's character, God's love in how we take care of the world? And then when it comes to people, 
we have to ask those exact same questions. How do we reflect God's goodness, God's character, and God's love when we uh, work on our relationships with other people, people who are of different ethnicities, different skin colors, people who are of different genders, people who are of uh, different faiths, people who are in different walks of life? Uh, and um, how do we, as Christians, build a bridge to the gospel to point others to Christ um, because the only one who can truly heal the world and truly heal the people in the world is Christ. Christ offers forgiveness, and because we have been forgiven, I think we have a responsibility and a burden to forgive others. Um, that includes those who have hurt us, uh, but it also requires us to confess where we have hurt other people. And so as, um, you know, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you know, this week, as you sort of think through some of the things that have been said on here, uh, I want to encourage you to think, you know, in your own sphere of influence, in your own community, where have you not been part of the solution? Where have you been part of the problem? And where has, um, you know, your situation uh, caused you to become a victim? Uh, you know, as it turns out, most people are victims somewhere, and most people are abusers somewhere. And, you know, that's, again, as Randall mentioned, because we all have a sin problem. Yeah. And so uh, as you think through this week, think about what can you do to bring healing in your neighborhood? What can you do to bring healing in your family? You know, there's a lot of families that are now interracial families. You know, what can you do to bring healing in your family? What can you do to bring healing in your neighborhood, in your community? What can you do to bring healing in your church? How can your church uh, reach the people around it regardless of what ethnicity they are, what vocations they have, what level of education they have, and how can you do so in such a way that everyone feels like they have a place to use their gifts and serve the body of Christ in the community. So thank you guys for listening today, and we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.